baseball and whatever with your host, Justin McAwee. Because I was on campus and I had to appear like I was one of the cool kids, I would put the Star Wars book inside one of my textbooks so it looked like I was just studying for class. <laughs> All right, look, there's only one return, okay? And it ain't of the king, it's of the Jedi. Vincent Francis Jankowitz of Ford. I'm a glorified fact checker. Last I checked, the most runs in a game wins. Actually, I am a fact checker. And Greg Probst. If you look at most Bond fans movie rankings, they have Casino Royale and Majesties in their top two. For me, these actually rank in the bottom part of my list. I mean, I love them, but they don't compare to Diamond Club Forever. No, stop getting Bond wrong! Hey everybody, uh, Justin here. Thank you for tuning in to the newest episode of Baseball and Whatever. The reason you are seeing and hearing me, depending on if you're listening or watching this on YouTube, uh, for some reason, StreamYard decided to completely eat and garble up the first like three minutes of our interview today. So let me just kind of preface what we discussed in the first three minutes before you guys get started. We are interviewing the one, the only, the amazing Andy Fry. If you are watching on YouTube, this is his book right here, 90 Days in the 90s. He is uh, the writer, a uh, phenomenal book if you are are an 80s born 90s kid that loves 90s music this is the book for you especially if you grew up or live near chicago like i do um really really hits home it's a great book but um what we started discussing is first of all we talked about how you can reach the show which you guys are familiar with if you listen to the show and then next we talked about the first album i ever bought was ace of bass and then followed by chumbawamba and andy starts talking about chumbawamba uh tub thumping i believe is 25 years old like last week or so so you're caught up to speed now. Uh, we will then go ahead and play into the uh, the rest of the video. The audio should be fine. Enjoy it. It's a great video, great audio, great interview with Andy. It was great to to take some time with him and, and get to get to meet him, get to learn a little bit about his writing process. Um, check out his book. All right, enjoy the show. Yes. 25 oh my god. year anniversary like a week ago, and it's always been kind of one of those you know, '90s pop songs mm-hmm. ever present in my mind. But I was like, wow. it's been a long time i mean i guess there were one hit wonders in the 90s too they are yes one of them so uh, well, we, we can dive into one hit wonders later, but uh, for those of you that are listening uh, on the podcast version or if you're watching on Twitch or YouTube, let me run through a little bit of Andy's qualif- qualifications, uh, exemplary qualifications, I should say. Uh, he's the author of 90 Days in the 90s from Atmosphere Press. He is writing for Forbes. He's also formerly of ESPN, Rolling Stone, and the Chicago Tribune. You can find him on Twitter at Sporty Fry. He's got great uh, some great takes on there. I've, I've definitely enjoyed following him on Twitter. Uh, again, we are baseball and whatever you can find us in a variety of ways. If you want to reach out or text us, you can reach us at one 3278 You can find us at youtube.com slash baseball and whatever twitch.tv slash baseball and whatever you can find us on Twitter at baseball and what, uh, and email the show at baseball and whatever at gmail.com. All right, let's dive in. Uh, Andy, I think I originally came across you interacting with the Q101 Twitter account, um, which I, I am an unabashed Q101 fan. I remember growing up, finding that radio station in Chicago. Got a little disappointed when it switched over to, God, what were they at first before they became... WKQX was the call. Well, yes. It was a news the news channel. That's what I'm thinking of, yeah. And then, I don't know, was it like, I don't know, easy listening music after that for like 20 minutes? Then yeah. it found its way back slowly, I guess, but... So, yeah, so I, I saw you reaching out and then I saw you had the book and I'm like, holy cow, this is, you know, this is right up my alley. So, I guess... 
my first first question for you is, you know, how did the book exactly come about? You know, the plot itself is pretty unique. I, I so far from you know, I'm about three quarters of the way through my. I wanted to finish it for tonight, but my daughter had other plans. <laughs> but uh, the the premise of you know Darby's this main character. She's an accountant. She goes to New York. Things don't go so well. I love the fact that you worked in that there were some issues with like. Um, uh, like some Bitcoin transactions and, and you know, yeah. some some cryptocurrency, which we are not the biggest fans of. And then you I can talk about I could talk about how much I hate NFTs for the longest time. <laughs> that could be a whole podcast. But, yeah. um, how, you know, how did you come up with a storyline? She she discovers the gray line. Also great reference to the L. And all of a sudden she's going back in time to relive her time in Chicago, you know, in the 90s and in going to take her life in a completely different direction, so to speak. Granted, it's only for 90 days, but how did that even come about? How do you generate that idea? Well, so um, so I said one of the characters, so the uh, Darby's best friend in, in, in the book, his name is Alex Spiro. You just call yep. him Spiro. Yep. And he's kind of like, uh, he, I mean, a lot of the people in the book, I don't, like Darby's not me. It's not autobiographical, but, um, you know, I lived through the 90s and I love music. And, you know, what I was, you know, I, I, I just kind of experienced a lot of the things that, I think um, I wanted to talk about. So Spiro is kind of an exaggeration of a short story poet, writer, friend of mine named Doug Milam, who used to live here. And he actually, he's up in the Pacific Northwest now. Mm -hmm. We used to have this thing, like just randomly, we just kind of, because it didn't make sense. We would say like, oh, we should, you know, hop on the Yale and go to uh, Woodstock this weekend. And we kind of played with the time space continue in place of places to go. Like, you know, this is like before the bean and millennium park existed. It was like, oh, do we go to, uh, it's going to, you know, we'll go here, we'll go there. At, you know, if you've been in Chicago, like when you first moved to Chicago in your 20s, you probably know this, you know, when you're broke and you're eating ramen noodles every night or quesadillas is your dinner, like you're not thinking about going to the, unless your parents are in town, they're going to pay, you know, spring for you, pay for the bill. You're not talking about going to the bar at the Hancock or, you know, spending like $12 your hard-earned money to go to the MCA. You'd love to, or like the architectural boat tour or anything like mm -hmm. that. You're just trying to like, rub nickels together and pay your rent and, you know, wash your clothes and, and go see a show, go see, you know, a band that you like. And mm -hmm. sometimes you pay, have to pay, you know, nowadays, 65, $70 to oh, see yeah. a band. Or maybe mm -hmm. you see uh, a band for like 12, 13 bucks. So it was a lot of that just kind of bouncing. Like, yeah, well, we should go to Nirvana's show, like Nirvana's first show. And I think I knew long ago when I researched this for the book that Nirvana's first ever Chicago show, at least that I know of, was 33 days after Smells Like Teen Spirit but was released as a single. Wow. If you think about it, it's like if you were at that show, you were either you would just go see whatever band was at Metro anyway, or you were really in the know. Like if you saw Nirvana at Metro, you know, holy crap, that's that, that's a great moment to think about. And, you know, I've had some situation like I went to the very last Grateful Dead show in mm. I'm not a deadhead, but I, I the last Grateful Dead show was July 9th, 1995. Jerry Garcia died one month to the day later. So the fact that I went to like my first show was the last dead show ever with Jerry Garcia mm -hmm. was like kind of cool. I didn't know that was going to happen, obviously. But I mean, when I was there, I thought, well, this is kind of like a I don't feel like I'm a deadhead. I don't want to like, you know, feel like I'm in with the crowd. I, but I was kind of observing pleasantly. And I, I think there's a lot of that when you live in a big city and you're overwhelmed by how much there is to see and maybe how, you know, how little time and space you have to experience all the stuff that people say you should do and should see it kind of, um, you know, you sort of become an amateur tour guide and you start telling people when you've been here for three, four years, like, Oh, you need to go th do this. You need to go see this. Like I've got a friend, another author friend of mine, Rita in a base who is from Portugal. You guys, 
this is a book written for kids, but you'll want to own it. It's um, it's basically a picture uh, picture book that's rock and roll history. Ooh, and okay. I'll look at the title. I mean, the title has kind of escaped me now. But like I said, we got to meet at Peace tomorrow to get pizza at Peace. And she wants to go to uh, her. She's with her husband from Portugal. We're gonna hit Reckless Records and do kind of like the whole rock and roll thing. So mm-hmm. there's that piece of it. But as Darby goes, um, I was actually like one of my last, I don't know, last one of my one of my corporate jobs over the. You know, my life was dealing. I worked at the board of trade. I dealt with traders who uh, trade everything from like the Nikkei to pork bellies and stuff. Mm-hmm. And actually, that, Darby's a trader. She's not an accountant, but oh, you know, right. I'm sorry. Sure, she, uh, yeah, she, I mean, she kind of lives, she kind of makes a decision as I think a lot of people in my generation did, like, you know, working for this little newspaper or working at a bar is fun, but I got to get serious now and, you know, do corporate job X. And then, you know, some of us did, some of us didn't. And, you kind of realize what really makes you happy and that work is work. And hopefully you find your way back and just, you'll make sure you enjoy life and you don't get too buried in to, uh, you know, being a vice president or whatever, you know? So I think she has a sort of a midlife crisis and she's not really admitting it or not real with it, but all these things happen. Uh, so yeah, the backstory on her is that she's, her life kind of falls apart in New York at the same time her favorite uncle dies. Mm-hmm. He has an awesome record store in Chicago and little, little does she know that, he willed it to her. So then she moves back to Chicago, takes over the record store. She's got an apartment in the same building. It's kind of forced to kind of like relive Chicago and also, you know, get a chance to kind of get reacquainted for every, with every, all the stuff that she forgot that she loved that she left behind. And then, you know, you're, you're here and you start experiencing things and you get nostalgic and you realize what a great city it is and you want to explore more. And then, uh, you know, there's a time travel train and lo and behold, I won't spoil, spoil too much, but there's a, uh, stop at the gray line under a record store and she has a chance to travel back in time and decides to kind of just hit the nineties and experience it again. Well, and, and nice. I love too, like there's, there's several references in the book where, you know, just she kind of takes note of, you know, no one's looking at, there's no, there's no cell phones to look at. People are just talking and in, in conversing and you're going to see concerts. And it, it almost made me, I didn't know I could really be nostalgic for a time period that, you know, I was only, you know, between like 10 and 15 in the nineties and, you don't yeah. realize how nostalgic you could be for that just because we are just inundated nowadays, whether it's social media or, you know, 24 hour news. And, um, you know, it, it was kind of nice to, to think back to, wow, yeah, people did live a little bit differently back then that, you know, we we kind of take for granted how it used to be. So um, I, I guess to, to weave in more with Chicago, you know, you you reference the Cubs, you reference. Um, I love there's a, there's a, a line in the Yes, the the Wiener Circle. Yes, you reference. You know, there's there's a character on on the I believe it was on a bus at one point that you know looks just like somebody from the '85 Bears. They got the mustache and the 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 Ditka glasses and stuff like that. Uh, there's there's tons of references to Malort, which I have somehow luckily avoided ever having in my entire life so far. So I'm thankful for that. But you know, there's 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 scenes that take place in Bucktown and in different neighborhoods throughout the city. But what made Chicago such a perfect setting? Because if I'm not mistaken, you're from Philly, right? So um, what made you say, okay, I want to set this in Chicago? Was it because obviously, you know, you, you've been here for such a long time now? Is it just because Chicago's more of a, it's a different style of city than maybe something like New York City where it could have been set there? But what made you yeah. ultimately settle on Chicago? Well, you know, I'm old enough. I could say that I've lived more than half my life here now. I moved in here in the <laughs> fall of 94. So, you know, by the time I moved here in, in a music lens, Kurt Cobain was dead. Uh, Oasis was playing little shows in, in Wrigleyville and other, you know, probably were up at Madison or Grinnell, you know, Grinnell College the next week. Um, we were kind of not really sure if, well, grunge and indie rock 
and you know music that involved people writing their own songs and playing their own instruments you know ace of bass notwithstanding no no you're right (laughs) you know you turn on so i could turn like you know i was i was telling somebody the other day like i don't really hate coldplay but i know that i could turn on the radio right now and i can hear coldplay oh yeah without a doubt yeah, and it's it's there's just kind of some pop rock bands like Imagine Dragons now that are kind of you know here's our token band that actually plays guitar and here's a Drake song. Whereas you turn on the radio, there was more variety back then. You know, you turn on the radio and hear L7 and Alice in Chains and yep. Static Youth and the Refreshments or like all kinds of bands. Citizen King or from Madison. Oh gosh, and yeah. I think it just there's such a pl- like when I first started write this book, I didn't know how to write a book. I never I'm an MFA. I didn't take any formal writing classes i did do something that's very chicago and i took improv classes and i performed at second city and from that you learn how to organically at least i learned how to sort of create dialogue that was you know organic and conversational not what are we doing and you know it's (laughs) so i just kind of rolled with it and i thought well when i started writing the novel like i gotta get all this stuff in the novel i gotta mention all this stuff but i didn't I didn't know what I was writing at first, but eventually when you get your plot and the characters down and I really felt like I wanted to hang out with the characters I created mm-hmm. sort of because they're people who you would meet in, the, in Chicago in the 90s who are into music. They're not, you know, Chicago is a Midwestern town. Uh, it, you know, it doesn't anger me at all, but I, I do think that, you know, Lounge Axe and Double Door, they're up there with the Whiskey Go-Go and CBGB and- Oh, for sure. Um, you know, the DC club or the, in DC, the 930 club. Like, I feel like they're in there, but they just- because we're in the Midwest, we don't really get the same billing. But, um, you know, I've, I've known people who've seen Smashing Pumpkins in front of 12 people at Lounge Axe because that's what they were doing. <laughs> so I think I just wanted to incorporate all those things as like real relatable experiences. Mm-hmm. And I've been here for more than half my life. And I think when I've, I actually started writing the, the book June 1st of 2017, and I'd come up with the idea, I think during Easter, and I was at a friend's house in Michigan and I was just kind of taking a break from doing some busy work and I went for a walk and I had all these playlists on Spotify um, that I came up with. And most of them were like, at the time, at least most of them were 90s music. And I just kind of revisited the idea like, boy, what a time travel back to the 1990s. Like, what the heck would I do? And what some of us writers do is we get an idea and, you know, you write it on a bar napkin, which is sort of the stereotypical story you hear about that. (laughs) Or, you know, you take a note of it and you, at least for me, I think a lot of writers do this is, if you give a shit about that idea two weeks from now, it's it's time to do something with it. Whereas we all have stuff like, oh, it's a great idea. I came up with a great idea for a movie, or uh, I got a, you know, I, I I can I should uh, call up uh, David Lee Roth. I got a great album, uh, you know, out concept album for him. Let's let's team like we all come up with this creative oh, stuff. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But then you've got to kind of pare it back. Like, what really makes sense, and what can I? Don't want to bite off too too much more than I can chew. What can I really do? And that was it. Kept um, I kept thinking like this is a really cool idea. I want to see what I can do with it. Um, you know, after writing sports writing type projects for so long, I think a lot of writers we all feel like either we have a book in us or we want to see if we could write a book. You know, if mm-hmm. we could pull it off. And that was also the main thing too. So Chicago is just kind of a natural place. It's a big city where there's a great quality of life, great music, and also a little bit underrated for its music scene. Mm-hmm. And, you know, to brag a little bit, we have, you know, I'm not a huge NFL fan, but if we went single season, they've got the best football team of all time, the 85 Bears. That's true. Jordan's mm-hmm. Bulls, I think, probably the second installment were the best basketball team of all time. We can get the nitty gritty about pizza and how you have your hot dog and all that fun <laughs> stuff. You know, I mentioned in one of the chapters, like, there's uh, Darby's kind of talking with her friend and like, why, why is the time travel machine time machine the gray line only available in chicago like why not other places mm-hmm. and she kind of has this 
little spell in our mind. We're like, well, you know, Chicago did invent the microwave and heart surgery. Yep. And we were close to river. We had got the greatest football team and basketball team of all time. So like, of course, like, why would you need to go anywhere else? It's kind of it like, just makes like, sense. Yeah. You know, that mentality and, and maybe how dumb it is at times, but also how legit that, you know, Chicago is, is, a, is a world city. And I don't know, it just felt natural. And I started running with it and, the more I wrote about the characters and the plot, it's more like I was hanging out with them, you know, in my own mind back in the nineties. Sure. It's, it's, it's definitely, you know, Grant's not living as close to, you know, cause I was literally across the street from Mount Greenwood growing up, but now living a little bit further away and in the few times, not so much the last couple of years, just cause everything's been crazy with the pandemic and everything. But those times where you get, we get, I get to go back downtown. It, it's almost like a Walt Disney esque feeling like, Ah, uh, you know, I, I, you don't realize how, what great thing you have literally, you know, 40 miles from your front door that, you know, people throughout the Midwest, especially in the flyover states, they don't have anything like that. It, it, you, I feel like I take it for granted. And then I see the skyline as I'm driving in, you know, through Lakeshore Drive or, you know, 57 into 9094. And it's like, man, this is just there's so much history. There's so much action here, you know, from a music standpoint, like you discover in the like you discuss in the book. I still remember going to see Smashing Pumpkins for the first time. Granted, I was a little bit later. I was in college. So this would have been maybe like their second or third reunion uh, at Chicago Theater. And it was just incredible. I'm like, wow, here's this band I've been listening to since, you know, sixth grade. And they started here. They got big here. Here they are. They're they're, they're reuniting. I'm at Chicago Theater. You know, I'm I'm right by Lake and State. Like, what more could I ask for? It's just like like you said, it's it's the perfect place to be. Um, And I I almost feel like the city kind of provides like a character itself, too. Right. Like it's the setting. Yes. But there's also just this demeanor and ambiance and, um, you know, whatever other words you want to use to describe it. But it, it really exudes character, I think, in a certain way. Yeah, and in, in 2000, um, so you were, you know, younger than me when this came out, but I remember when, I remember hearing that uh, High Fidelity was going to be made, made into a mm-hmm. movie because I had a couple of friends, kind of more acquaintances, but I knew, like, my friend Doug was like, oh, yeah, Dave's going to be, he's an extra in High Fidelity. I'm like, well, you like, we'll go see and point him out. And um, so he had, like, we had, like, two people that we knew in the movie who were extras. Actually, one, um, there's a poet named Damien Rogers. I think she lives in Canada now, but at the time she was in Chicago. And so she's the girl in high fidelity. Who's like, Hey, is this a new green day? When they're in the shop, they're playing. Um, or she was like, her role is a green day girl. I didn't really know her very well, but I knew like of her because, you know, my best friend was a poet and I knew some like literary types, even though sure. I was just trying to figure out what I was doing writing wise. So like little stuff like that, that you know, I actually know people in the movie and um, yeah, I could probably, talk about trivia of that movie but the fact that it took place in chicago does have mm-hmm. to do with john cusack being from here yeah but it also seemed like a perfect place beside like the book takes place in london but it's a perfect place mm-hmm. to have like a record store with um you know it's not the kind of record store that famous rock stars are going to walk into because they don't mm-hmm. live in park chicago but you know right. who knows there's always crazy zany stuff that happens and oh yeah and roll stuff that happens too so for sure uh, that kind of gave, gave chicago a little bit of deserved i guess street cred in in the music mm-hmm. scene and we have it forever now excellent nice. excellent nice well i haven't read the book yet justin's the reader of the podcast yes, and he can speed I... read anything um but i'm definitely going to have to pick up a copy because yeah it yeah. uh sounds very interesting and right up my alley um but since you're from Philly uh, and yeah. you've lived, I guess, half of your over half your life now in Chicago, I guess, what are some of the differences between Philadelphia and Chicago? And I guess, how did you end up in Chicago and kind of landed there? 
Yeah. So I graduated college in 94. So it was a long ass time ago. But so in the mid 90s, you know, before the stock market blew up and everything was golden, there was actually, you know, a recession. And I knew people like, you know, friends of mine who were older who like went to better colleges than I did, went to like Princeton, Cornell, who were mm. back at home working for the park district because there were no jobs anywhere. It's kind of the first uh, kind of the part where I guess America broke from my dad's America, where my dad would be like, well, just go to Leo Burnett and bring your uh, resume in and say you want to talk to the hiring manager to, you know, if you are on an appointment, you're not getting through the lobby and we're not hiring anybody right now who doesn't have, you know, a couple years of experience. Like now people graduate from college, they have to go work at the Gap and Starbucks to get a right. job. It's your right. three days to, to get a General Mills job or, you know, it, you know, there's, there's it's more like that. And then add that in a recession. Um, I just knew that I wanted to live in a big city. And I guess the, the caveat was that I knew a few people were getting jobs I heard in Chicago. And I was like, well, I, I love to live in a major city. New York's probably too expensive. Uh, L.A. was a million miles away. And I didn't want to live in a city where, you know, like our uh, NL rivals, you know, St. Louis, they have to drive everywhere oh. and eat second rate pizza. I would definitely want to do that. That's very true. In, or like Tampa or, uh, you know, I, I could rip on cities all day. Like I had a friend who was <laughs> in Charlotte. Charlotte's beautiful, a little too Southern for me. So Chicago is kind of like, well, I've never been there. They got a YMCA. I can at least stay for a night and figure it out there. And then, um, you know, it's like a little, he's kind of, you know, visited some friends in Ohio and booked a bus, I think from Cincinnati and came up here and, it's kind of like the movies. I didn't know what the hell I was doing and was walking around a lot, just trying to figure out where I was and applying for jobs. And I just, you know, I, I guess I, I got some traction and I stayed and I liked it. You know, I did. It, Chicago does have a great quality of life and we can complain about, you know, the the mayor or the parking tickets or the construction or whatever. But <laughs> if you can hack living in a big city, it's one of the best, I think, because mm-hmm. everything's here. And it's, you know, I guess thanks to climate change, it's not as cold anymore. There's not. That's true. We don't get negative 20 for two months like we did in 94 and 96. So Oof. that's, uh, yeah, I just wanted to live in a big city and Chicago was great and uh, Philly's great too. But Chicago actually was, I, I'm i not a sociologist or urban planning expert, but it seemed like Chicago was the first of the cities that said, you know, People want to live in the city. You know, Daly was the mayor at the time and kind of figured out that we need to come up with a system of refurbishing the city to get people to move back to the city. So Chicago was kind of like the first one. And then, you know, I'm hearing from friends back home that, you know, people are like moving into Philly now. And I'm hearing the same thing about Kansas City and Mm -hmm. Indianapolis, where when I was growing up in the 80s, the city was the inner city. Either you... You know, if you were the son of a millionaire, you might live in Center City, Philadelphia, off of I don't know a Rittenhouse Square, and you go to private school. But and then if you weren't, you were poor, and there was no reason to go to the city other than the museums or football game or baseball mm-hmm. game. So, city major cities became much more livable, and I think I alluded to this in my book when uh, Darby goes to Amsterdam, and she kind of has the same sort of realization, like that. Not all cities everywhere are skyscrapers named after insurance companies. There's a lot more. There. And so the city started to evolve in the 90s to become more livable. And, uh, you know, just I, I was here probably when that was starting to happen. And then I definitely wasn't going to move home to the suburbs. So, <laughs> and, uh, I mean, Philly's great. I go back when I can. Uh, I think it's just Chicago's 
got a little bit better quality of life and a little bit more variety, maybe nothing against Philly. Uh, you know, I, I'm more of an East coast style pizza fan, however. Mm, okay. But deep dish is just something different. So yeah. I, I yeah. think that there's, that's not a sake. That's not worth arguing over, I guess. No, uh, there's no. just Pizza's so much pizza, food. right? So, yeah. Um, I, yeah. I guess... so I mean, And the Cubs, you know, I'm, I'm, Primarily Philly sports fan, except for the Cubs. I work for the Cubs okay. over the Phillies well, any day. So I'm I'm glad you brought that up because that kind of leads me into my next question. And I know we had talked on Twitter. I know there's that there's the one chapter, and and I had read it actually like right around the time that you had reached out to us about it, where you know one of the characters is telling Darby about all these different Cubs games they went to go see, and you know you can go back here, you could you know 1969 or 1984, 1989. <laughs> you know I, I think I would go back to 2003 and just cry all over again after that whole debacle. But we don't need to get into that. That. But um, I guess for you, like, obviously, you, you got the Wrigley Field, you know, marquee behind you. you. You mentioned you're more of a Cubs fan besides anything else as opposed to the Phillies. But what is it? Was it just a, a matter of moving here and just kind of being inundated by Cubs fans in the north side and the Cubs in general? Or was there something that kind of allured you, I guess, to being a Cubs fan as opposed to a White Sox fan once you got here? Yeah, I, I've written about this when I used to write for Tribune. I primarily wrote for for the Red Eye, and then sometimes if I was lucky, if I wrote something good enough, it might show up in the Tribune on the, on okay. the main page. Um, I don't know. I think it's uh, just kind of grows on you. Like I think probably the first couple of years of thinking the Cubs suck. Why is traffic so bad? I can't park anywhere. <laughs> They're not worth it. Um, you know, in, in 1994, 95, if you had a car in the city, you were stupid enough to bring a car into Wrigleyville or Ooh. Lake. You had to just accept once or twice a month you were going to get a forty dollars ticket because you couldn't, or you park. You'd have to park in Wisconsin and walk back to your apartment. I mean, <laughs> right. I, I, was, I lived on uh, Clark and like just north of Diversity, and I would have to park all the way over at like Racine or Southport and walk. Like that's, Ooh, that's how bad geez. it was until wow. they rezoned it. So uh, every once in a while, when you you know you're getting back from work at seven thirty and traffic still sucks and the Cub game Cubs game is either letting out or something, you're just like. All right, I, I'll just take a chance. And so, but you go from that to warming up to the neighborhood and kind of seeing how wonderful it is, whether the Cubs are good or not. Uh, and, you know, you, either you buy into the whole Sox thing that the Cubs aren't real baseball and they all eat brie and you know, they don't <laughs> care about sports and they're just there to, I guess, now take selfies and, you know, check in on Facebook. And Make <laughs> the, uh, what is it, the Cup Snakes? That's the, the rage yep. all the days out in the bleachers. Yeah, you're yeah. just, just going to get free, free swag. Uh, and you realize you either you accept that or you, you, you know, you realize that it's not true and that, that there's a real, nothing it's the White Sox, but there is a real experience at, at Wrigley Field for, you know, as much as you could, might be able to criticize it. Um, or, you know, maybe I don't particularly like the Ricketts, you know. There's, oh, yeah, I'm right there with you. <laughs> whole experience. Uh, you know, I, it's weird. Every time, uh, for a while, every time I saw Cubs fans, friends of mine, take a picture with Tom Ricketts, I was like, why are they taking a picture with Ted Cruz? I'm like, oh, wait, that's not Ted <laughs> Tom Ricketts, but they look a lot alike. Right? Like, yeah, uh, you're not. Yeah. You're not wrong. You're not I mean, wrong. Ted, yeah. Ted Cruz is a little obviously looks like he, you know, is more constipated and pissed off and not friendly. But also true, they yeah. do look like they could be related. Anyway, so I don't know. I think it's just kind of hanging around, and it's actually that 2003 season. Uh, the Cubs used to have night and weekend packages. I don't think they have those anymore. But I, I mm-hmm. bought you know, back when I was in the trading. Uh, trading sector and I had, you know, I was making probably too much money for my relative age group when I was 30 years old. I was like, I sprang for, you know, 
don't know, I felt it was like 1200 bucks for a bunch of tickets. And it was probably mm-hmm. maybe 64 games or so. So I would go I'd be at Cubs games like two, three times a week. And that really, you know, it's like being part of the club. And yeah. it doesn't matter whether they win or lose a little time or you just kind of feel like a local and a regular. And that's important. I think probably every decent sports franchise the ones that really have relationships with their fans and there's, there's, you know, there's scores of them in, in every sport do that well and really know how to cultivate that. And I think the Cubs probably, you know, I've heard, I've never been to Lambeau, but I've heard, even if you hate the Packers and you go to Lambeau, you feel like it's you're yeah. Like you're at Disneyland. Like there's an experience. They're very welcoming. The whole thing rules. And, and, you know, in the summertime, Wrigley, Wrigleyville and Wrigley field is like that. And I think that there's kind of an emotional thing that happens if you are willing to accept it. And if you live here, that you know the Cubs just become your team. You got to like baseball, I think, a little bit to really get um, more out of it than you would if you're not a baseball fan. But yeah, there's something emotional about the Cubs, and I think maybe maybe all baseball fans feel that about feel that about their team. But I think we have something over like Detroit Tigers fans and Arizona Diamondbacks fans. I don't really feel like they experience the same sort of thing that we do, but I could be wrong. I, I think, and, and Vinny, you can probably attest to this too. Like, obviously, I, on the podcast, I'm the one that always tries to sneak in hockey talk because that's what I grew up playing is ice hockey. And, you know, going to the United Center, you know, Chicago Stadium, I vaguely, very vaguely when I was a kid going there for like Disney on ice and stuff. But, you know, going in the United Center, it's it's cool. It's a stadium. But there's some, I, I still remember the, and this is probably going to sound dramatic, but the, the goosebumps of, you, you know, coming out of that underground concourse and walking up into Wrigley. And it's just like, wow. This yeah. is there's something so special about this. Granted, there's there's parts of it, there's amenities of it I don't like, but it's you know I've equated it to the Vinny. What did I say? It was like your your favorite dive college dive bar, bar that's a complete dump that you know it's a dump, but it's your dump, and you know how dare anybody talk badly about it, right? So um, yeah, it's it's. I, I think you bring that up. It. So in the book, I wanted to kind of experience that. So there's I'm not going to spoil too much, but the way that uh, so. The time travel mechanism, for anybody who doesn't know anything about the book, you see there's a, an L train on the front cover. You look over my shoulder if you're actually watching us. The, there's a, the time travel mechanism is called the gray line. And one thing that uh, it's kind of to, to elaborate in the 90s, I remember the 90s also is everybody got email, everybody got a computer, everybody. So we started getting, you know, within about a month of getting your own email address at work or on your own. You know, you get urban legend sent to you, a list of like things that you didn't know, like uh, fun mm-hmm. fiction you didn't know about this, or and then you know, the the exiled Nigerian princes started yes. contacting yep. you four hundred million dollars if you share your account info <laughs> with them. So like the whole urban legend thing was big, and I wanted to play with that because I feel like it was a it was sort of we I used to get chain letters in college, and oh, I remember yeah. the, oh, the yeah. first time I got yeah. an email that was the same chain letter, but it was emails like really, dude. So uh, yeah. There was that, and then, you know, so the gray line is the mechanism that Darby uh, or anybody <coughs> who knows about it can time travel uh, all the way back to 1947, which is actually when the CTA was established. Mm-hmm. And there's rumors about it. Some say it was like, a, you know, a scientist experiment with it. Some say it was like built and abandoned, abandoned by the War Department. Some say it was like, you know, the forgotten train line. And anyway, Darby finds it, and it does go to the 90s because the 90s were in the past. And, um, you know, she's heard the, the urban legends as everybody else has, but, you know, like the New Jersey Devil or the Mothman, we think it's BS. Sure. And then she's uh, out with her friend one night, her friend, she's having a great time, her friend has to call a night, and she's kind of lonely, and she just decides to go to this dive Cubs bar to watch the Cubs. 
Uh, first, she goes to Nisei Lounge, which is a real bar, and then she yes, goes to the, right outside. Uh, this is pretty close to the stadium, if I'm not mistaken, right? Yeah, right down, right down the street from Wrigley. Yep. Um, so she goes to this dive bar, just kind of across the street, one of those around the corner. It's like one of those bars that there's no name out front for the bar; it just has like an old style sign. Yeah, like, you know, and um, you know, yeah. They didn't bother to put the name of the bar up. So there's plenty of those in Chicago, and so she's talking to this, you know, kind of crazy old man who's a Cubs fan, and they're watching the game, and he starts babbling about baseball, and he's like, "Yeah, you know, I went to see a Arietta's hitter. You know, I went, I went to his no hitter against the Reds mm-hmm. the 16th season. I saw it three times." And she's thinking he's talking about like Tebowing it or something. He's like, "No, I went, I went back in time and saw this baseball game." And she's thinking, "What the hell is this guy talking about?" Mm-hmm. Kind of get lets on that the, the the gray line legend is true, maybe. And uh, kind of hears about it and just thinks, you know, like I'm becoming a local again. I'm hearing the great legends of Chicago. This is fun. You know, nothing, nothing serious over a beer. And then later finds out that the gray line is real and that she can take it back in time. And, you know, it's nostalgic about the 90s, I guess, maybe as I am or any Gen Xer is a little bit at least about the music. And then kind of makes a plan to, like, do a, a reboot of her life or a do over. Mm-hmm. But Kind of the subplot is that when she's back in the 90s, she's not dealing with her shit. She's actually having too much of a good time partying back in the right. 90s in the music scene. And she only has 90 days to either come back to the present or stay. And uh, so that's a dilemma. You know, it's kind of like uh, I think a lot of times as the three of us being men, you know, we we often see in movies that the men are the commitment phobes and the men have like sort of unresolved issues that we have. But I don't in writing the book, I kind of wanted to be honest with that topic and thought, well, uh, when I decided that Darby was going to be a female character that, you know, she can have that too. And and that I wanted to kind of explore that hurt, you know, anybody going back to another time, you can't time travel, obviously, but if you could, <laughs> you might be perplexed about it. And sometimes in time travel literature and movies, it's all about saving the world or preventing this thing from happening or getting a lottery ticket. And I didn't want it to be about that. I wanted it to be about experiencing something a little bit more personal. So well, nice. and I'm I'm glad you brought that up because that kind of leads leads into another discussion point I wanted to bring up. I love uh, at one point in the book she's she's writing um she she's working for this this music uh she's writing a music column and she talks about the idea of vintage going back vintage concerts and doing vintage reviews and she's using the gray line to go back to these famous dates where where these these initial concerts of these huge bands that were ready to break open. Uh, yeah. And being able to review them and then, you know, put them in, in in her articles and things. Is there one in particular? I mean, I was fascinated by that because it really got me thinking about all these concerts I missed out on, you know, growing up, middle school, high school, you know, before I started really getting into concerts and stuff in college. Is there one in particular that when you were writing that, that you kind of had in mind that you would like to go back and see if you could? I don't, you know, I don't know. The thing is, yeah, she experiences FOMO before FOMO is cool, I guess. <laughs> I do remember when the when the House of Blues opened in Chicago, and I don't quote me on the date, but I feel like it was New Year's Day, nineteen ninety six or ninety seven. That the first concert there was James Brown, and like oh, you man. obviously you couldn't get tickets. Wow. Oh yeah, and you know, I'm speaking now about you know James Brown still being alive and playing at this relatively small venue. I mean, holy shit! Like oh would yeah, you I... proud House of Blues. Like even if I'm in the worst seat in the house. That would be amazing. So there's some of that. I do remember the last show. I, I think the very last show, uh, or one of the last shows, was Smashing Pumpkins did kind of like an acoustic, like an unplugged type thing at Lounge Jacks. Mm-hmm. I think all the proceeds went to some sort of charity. I think it was like, you know, it was like $600 starting to get in. You had to kind of know about it before it happened. Sort of like when Metallica played at Metro, uh, I don't know what, a couple months ago. And it was mm-hmm. like, oh, yeah, Metallica's playing Metro. Um, Did you get tickets? No. No. Thanks for, no. <laughs> 
there's a lot of those, but there's a, like, I remember Lounge Jacks, one of my favorite bands of the 90s in uh, 94, 95, there's a band called The Spinanes, and actually the drummer from The Spinanes went to Built to Spill. They've got two really great albums. They're on Sub Pop Records, at least they were, now they're on Merge Records. And I love this band, and I remember thinking, like, eh, you know, they're not that big. I'm just going to go over to Lounge Jacks. And I was standing in line when it sold out. Like, it wasn't a matter of, Someone leaves the bar, I can go in. It was like, you're not getting in. Sorry, no. you're number eight in line. And I thought, well, this is my only chance to see this band that I thought nobody else liked but me. You know, there's plenty of that, plenty of that. And yeah, so I think there's probably 50 of those that I could I could get back to you on someday if you want. But oh, sure. I think the point is that there's a, a kind of a momentum for music fans that there are those things. And Darby tries to, when she's thinking about doing this, you know, where else should I go back in time? Now that I'm back in time, I could jump back on the gray line. Uh, she she kind of hits up what her, her she's got a friend, a roommate actually, a little guy named Rod who's like a James Bond obsessive. Yep, film school grad. I was immediately thinking of our co-host Greg when I read that yeah. about him. <laughs> he's trying to have this conversation like, "Hey, if you could go back to like the golden age of movies, like what movie set would you want to, you know, be be there for?" And it's not really the same thing. I mean, it's sure. like um, concerts. I think like we all probably have our favorite concerts. I, I remember watching. So I grew up in Philly. I remember in 1985 watching Live Aid on my TV. Mm -hmm. My parents weren't into me. They would never have taken me down to JFK Stadium for Live Aid. It wouldn't even remotely been on the radar. And I would think I was I was 13 then. So, yeah, but it was happening in my backyard, basically. Like all the best bands in the world. And even mm. Phil Collins played in London and flew from with the Concord. Yeah, from and then flew back. Philly. Yeah. Wow. I was into Judas Priest at the time, and I was so excited that they played at high noon. Judas Priest was like the fourth band at Live Aid, like after Joan Baez and Billy Ocean or something. Mm -hmm. So there's tons of those. And I think that, you know, you're getting that that informs sort of the excitement, and the momentum behind Darby's, you know, feeling like she needs to do this. There is a lot of kind of like a dazed and confused ethic where she just goes back to the 90s and kind of hangs out for a while. Mm -hmm. But then she has this ability to jump on the gray line and time travel elsewhere, you know, maybe not to look for a better existence, but to like experience stuff like you would at an amusement park. There's that piece of it. I guess time travel kind of makes uh, the locations like an amusement park, I guess. And that's, that's just sort of how it happened. Well, and, and I love the, I love the aspect of, okay, I, you know, she's got her, the, they, you know, you reference about how it looks like a, an old Apple iPhone or not, I'm sorry, not iPhone, Apple watch or something like that, you know, to, yeah. to, to relegate how many days she has left. And there's this kind of like back and forth, you know, subcon not subconsciously, but you know, in her head that, okay, well I could go do this. I could go do that, but okay, well I've, I've wasted the last three weeks, just getting to get to see my roommates again from back in the day. And like you said, partying, you know, going to bars, going to see shows, um, and stuff like that. And then there's that realization, okay, I need to figure out, you know, what am I going to do with my time here? Which I just, I loved that because it kind of put some, some pressure on her, but it wasn't like you said, it wasn't this, oh my gosh, I have to save the world. It's just this, you know, how am I going to relive these times? And what am I going to do differently this time? As opposed yeah. to leaving Chicago for New York, you know, for that trading job that she does in, in the real world, I guess you could say, but, um, yeah, so I, it, I, I think you nailed it there with God, I can't even imagine, uh, being that close for live aid, but, uh, yeah, well, that that piece of it, like the 90 day timer, I, I worked after I maybe done my second or third draft. Um, I had a, a friend who's a literary agent who said, you got some good ideas here, but you're not ready. Um, hire what's called a developmental editor. So I hired this uh, woman who had just rolled off from a publisher. I think she got sick of commuting to Naperville and was just kind of going to do the editing thing. So she was great. Her name was Grace. And um, I you know, basically hired her to sort of read my book and come up with suggestions. And 
it was, you know, my generation grows up, grew up and thinks very much in terms of like a cinematic way. We think of movies and TV clips to tell stories. And she's like, so I'm thinking of Die Hard when, you know, this is or, or like a show like 24, where it's like if she can just kind of come and go as she pleases time traveling and there's no there's no like pressure mm-hmm. that doesn't really make for a good compelling story. If, if you are the hero and you have to defuse a bomb. It's not just whenever you get around to it. It's like you've got, you know, also like the MacGruber skits on. on yeah. You've got you've got three minutes or or twenty four hours or some time limit to do this, and you've got to use your time wisely. And, and that heightens the action. And sort of as a writer, it forced me to kind of make some choices and decisions and not be wishy washy about. Oh well, you know, maybe she will think this. Maybe she will do this or not. It's really like you know she has to make some decisions here, and there's outcomes to those. And I think we all know that. You know, if we don't show up to work one day or uh, decide to, uh, I don't know, um, walk blindfolded out in the expressway, there are consequences and there are things that happen if you do those things. So it's the same thing as if you know, kind of know what you're doing, you know what you want. There's always outcomes to things. And it, the editor really helped me kind of come up with what are the outcomes of her going back to the 90s and then for 90 days. It just also just kind of sounded catchy, too. So. The constraints help, you know, for sure. Oh, for sure. Without a doubt. Without a doubt. Excellent. Excellent. Nice. Nice. Um, So you've interviewed some pretty interesting bands, Smashing Pumpkins, Oasis, Jimmy Eat World, Rage Against the Machines, Alice in Chains. Um, Is there one interview where you had an expectation going in uh, about maybe the band and it was like completely, completely different uh, doing the interview? And they just came off completely different from what your expectations were. Yeah, there's one. I So most of the time when I, so I had a stint covering what I would call aging rock stars and their sports hankerings for ESPN for a while, which is kind of a cool gig. The first started out with Billy Corgan doing his wrestling league. And I actually just saw something on Instagram today. Like he's restarting a new wrestling league. Mm-hmm. NWA, I can't remember what it stands for, but it's like, or like new world Alliance. So he was doing the wrestling thing and I covered that. And I kind of was like, well, what else is out there? So um, most of the time I talked to them, this is before Zoom, I talked to them on the phone for like 10 or 15 minutes, not a long time, but, you know, I keep it conversational. And the, one of the people that I did not interview, but I, I emailed questions, I thought I was going to get blown off, but it didn't, was with Morrissey, you know, Morrissey from the Smiths, really, the, the beloved and hated Morrissey. Mm-hmm. And um, so I emailed a bunch of questions, not loaded ones, I didn't get personal, but, you know, asking about like sports related things. And so I asked these questions. You give me like detailed answers, but not answer the question. So then the article became about that. So I wrote this for ESPN probably about 10 years ago. Um, I was in January. I was like, got the email. I'm, 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 I was getting tires put on my car and I went to a cafe and it was like dumping snow outside. I'm going through his answers. I'm like, he didn't answer any one of my damn questions, but he gave me good answers. <laughs> I remember like if you, if you Google the article, it's um, it, I think the first line of the article basically like q a it's not a q a it's an interview piece with morrissey sort of about his new tour at the time and it was like i think i think the line is stephen patrick morrissey is considered an international man of mystery so i asked him uh, there's a rumor that he was i want you know he's from manchester i want to know if he's a man united fan or what or mm-hmm. I, someone said that he liked millwall and supposedly the story was that he was friends with somebody who was a staff at millwall and then they gave him a shirt, and I think he wore the shirt somewhere in L.A. So people were like, oh, Morris, he's a, Will, a Millwall fan. And then he said that there were rumors about that he bought the club. You know, it's like a South London second division mm-hmm. club. Kind of like buying the Iowa Cubs, I guess. So 
So uh, he didn't answer this, except for that one. He didn't really answer the question. So the, the article became about that, and it was actually turned out really well. So, hmm. And then my editor um, at the time, Dave Wilson, who I think he, he after that he went on to um, ESPN the magazine. He's just a really great editor at ESPN. He found a picture of Marcy wearing a West Ham United shirt, which is like Millwall's arch rival. So it just played into the whole like, maybe, <laughs> maybe you don't. Maybe I'll answer your questions. Maybe I'll give you a different answer. It just played in the whole dynamic, which – it's kind of very Marcy. I got a great, you know, short piece out of that just, just by answering questions he didn't asking questions he didn't answer. And uh, you know, for for not getting to talk, he doesn't really talk to many people. I think Jonathan Ross and maybe uh uh Graham Norton on BBC apparently mm -hmm. uh, BBC America, like the only two people who would get an interview with him. Um so I was lucky to get an email interview through his press agent in New York at the time. But yeah, it made for a great article and you know, I didn't know what to expect, but Man, he's he's an interesting dude, whether you like him or not. Every everything I've read about him is is very very interesting, very unique. So that's yeah. I'm not surprised that you got a, an email with unanswers to your questions or not answers to your questions. But I, I, speaking of Morrissey and you know 80s and things like that, you know, with I feel like. I feel like that wave of of 80s nostalgia is starting to die down a little bit. You know, the, yeah. the 90s tidal wave is coming. With the 80s, you know, we've had Stranger Things and, and yeah. Cobra Kai remakes. And they're they're making a Drago Rocky movie now, apparently. It's Drago's side of the story or Drago's son. I can't remember which it was. But um, yeah. for me, like that 90s nostalgia wave that's coming and, and, and going along with your book, you know, for me, it, it, it really resonates because that's when I found music and I got into sports and and video games and i mean i could talk 90s athletes all the time you know I, yeah. I couldn't tell you half the team half the players in the mlb now besides the cubs and the nl central but do you think there's a reason that you know not so much for the 80s but now that we're hitting that 90s wave like i said yeah. do you think there's a reason that that's so relevant again is it just a nostalgia wave for people you know Vinny and i's age that that's what we grew up with and now we're the ones that you know have a little bit of disposable income so people are marketing directly to us or is there something more to that do you think it could be. I don't know if I believe in the whole plan of obsolescence thing that there's, you know, a bunch of marketing execs who said, OK, on decide on October 15th of 2022. OK, that's we're going to do the 90s thing. And we're going to sell. A shit <laughs> sure. And that may be. But so like going back to the 90s. Uh, so the BC Boys second album, Paul's Boutique, actually came out in 89. They mm -hmm. were doing something unique in the head of their time when everybody was either doing gangster rap or trying to do gangster rap. And then. The other hip hop group from the time that was kind of doing something unique was uh, a tribe called Quest, and they yep. were doing like a jazz influence thing. Um, so they both kind of touched on '70s music, and, and, and it took a couple of years to catch on. But I know fast forward to like '97, '98, all of a sudden you're turning on MTV, and there's these compilations for like the '70s hits and disco America that you can buy, and like the KTEL records that would come out where they have. All the disco hits, but they're kind of in easy listening instrumental mm -hmm. form. They were coming out again. Uh, there used to be a bar in Chicago called Polyesters, which I think they had a pretty nice weekend crowd anyway, but just was like packed. You couldn't get in. You you know you'd wear your you'd go to thrift shop and buy some bell bottoms and you'd wear it. You look like an idiot walking around downtown <laughs> Chicago in February with bell bottoms on, waiting to get into this club so you can dance the seventies hits like everybody's doing now. So I feel like it's cyclical, and and I think the yeah, it's the generation that is kind of, you know, get, getting back to my, my <laughs> thing about like, you know, rubbing nickels together and eating ramen noodles every night to having some disposable income and being like, I really love this. I really love, I want to buy this set. I want to, you know, experience this music again. Um, yeah, it's sort of primed to be the 90s turn. I think it's a, we're a little overdue, but sure. 
Stranger Things and, and a lot of TV, I think, influences it. I would suspect if if they put out an episode of Stranger Things and they put a Nirvana song or actually or, or like any of the 90s bands. And um, what's the other? Uh, Lucifer was it was a pretty good uh, series that actually had great music, wasn't all mm-hmm. 90s music. When you kind of throw that in there, like what just we we just saw with the Kate Bush yes. thing blowing up, like I think there's people who didn't even know who Kate didn't know Kate Bush was a singer until a month ago, and you know one song on an episode that's kind of catchy. You know, I'm I'm glad. I'm hoping she's making some money off of it, and you know having yeah. a nice little uh, boon period. But I think you know, we revisit things that are good. That's the cool part about a Western culture, I guess, in Americana is that. Um, we, there's enough quality art and music out there that when you reach for something old a second time, it really resonates with people. And we can also look at all the bad music from the eighties too. Like, I don't know why we <laughs> built, we built this city by starship was a number oh. <laughs> terrible song. I mean, I like the Jess, Jefferson airplane before the band changed its name, but there's a lot of bad songs from the eighties, but uh, I was just having a conversation with like, there are some great pop bands from the eighties, like the Smithereens and Huey Lewis and the news and yep. Durant man is great pop and Cindy Lauper and the go-go's like, these are bands that also wrote songs and played their own instruments. And um, yeah, there's, there's more of that in the nineties. I think it's just got, there's going to be some flick of the switch, either like a TV episode or a remake of something, or maybe, sure. you know, no, um, an old, an old band drops a, a good album. I remember when Neil Diamond's good nineties album came out and I think, Dylan did a good 90s album that kind of brought back the 60s and 70s thing again. There's all kinds of reasons it could happen. I think uh, the 90s sort of being mainstream again is seems like it's a long time coming, but I, I hope sure. so. I, mean, I hope it's it's right around the corner or it happens tomorrow. Who knows? I, I, I can't even tell you how many times I've heard the Kate Bush song this week just driving to work on the on, on radio. It's, it's crazy. I, I'm i happy for her because obviously I'm hoping that's, you know, helping, you know, whether it's, you know, I know Spotify li- uh, listens don't doesn't pay the bills. But I, I kind of felt bad. I think it was Meg Myers, I believe, did a cover of that song like two, three years ago. And I had heard it on, on like Top 40 Radio a couple times and nobody made a big deal. And then here comes stranger things with the original, you know, the Kate Bush version and it just blows up all over again. So it, it it's crazy to see how just, you know, something all as awe encompassing as a streaming show can really kind of change the dynamic when you, when it comes to music, but uh, yeah, remakes are, I mean, I remember when a couple of years ago, um, Lana Del Rey redid the mm-hmm. um, sublime song. Yes. Um, time. And mm-hmm. yep. I think she did a really great job with it. And you know, so I saw Sublime at Riot Fest last year, and it was cool. I mean, obviously, Brad Lee has been dead for 25 mm-hmm. years now. Mm-hmm. I mean, it was a lot of white people doing this in the crowd, you know, it was, but it was fun. <laughs> and there are some good songs. I mean, I don't think their body work is like Led Zeppelin or anything, but they got some no. really great songs from the, the one or two albums that they put out that are really like, I hear, um, what's, that, what's that song that... Um, what I got. I mean, there's something about yeah, that. Yep. The dog in the video, I just kind of brings back memories and pulls at the heartstrings I'm, a little bit. I'm still partial. Badfish is my favorite Sublime song. I don't know why, but uh, I had huh. the chance. I'm, I'm still kicking myself. We were, my wife and I were out in uh, Denver about two, three years ago, and it was Red Rocks. It was Sublime with Rome, and we were, you know, him and Haw, and we ended up not getting a chance to go see them. But I'm like, oh, that would have been, you know, seeing a concert at Red Rocks, I think would be really, really cool. But uh, yeah. Yeah. So. Nice. Yeah. Well, Andy, 
you've also not only interviewed interesting musicians, you've also interviewed interesting athletes. Tom Brady, Tracy McGrady, Lindsey Vaughn, Jenny Finch, and uh, Derek Jeter as well. Um, so I guess my question would be is what has been your biggest takeaway uh, with these athletes and what makes them both successful like on the field and then I guess out of it because Tracy McGrady is doing his he's got his own one-on-one basketball league uh, and what is it Derek Derek Jeter's also been he's got his hands and everything yeah yeah pretty much yeah right now I think the thing is you know I I kind of always challenge myself and maybe get off in a little bit like I'm going to talk to these world famous athletes like a regular person so you know I always disliked um, sportscasters like Jim Jim Gray that stick a microphone in someone's face and try to ask, ask somebody, you know, a, a question to get a certain angle or like to, you know, I, I hate that. My, my favorite sportscaster was Dick Chap because he could be conversational, was genuine with everybody. So I'm not, I'm no Dick Chap, but I try to, and writing for a business magazine for Forbes, you know, I get to talk about whatever their business thing is. So they want to talk about that. But the main thing is I think just being genuine, you know, they're, they're no matter how famous they are, um, they're also they're professional and the best ones want to be seen as professional, but they're also there are, are people too. You know, they've got families, they got dogs, they got things that they like like and love and you know, little quirks that we have and you know, they stub their toes and have bad days too. And I think it's just a matter of talking to a person like they're a person, and I think that's served me well. And I, I built a nice steady relationship with a handful of PR firms and public publicity firms. And so they, they kind of come to me when they have somebody interesting. A lot of times I have to say, no, thank you. Um, I mean, I can't interview everyone. I only do about five, five to six pieces a month for Forbes. And they're mostly like Q and a things focused Mm -hmm. on an athlete and whatever their business thing is. But um, yeah, it's, I mean, it's just, it's, it's just, it's been a fun thing to, to have an opportunity to talk to all kinds of different athletes who are legendary I remember the first, so one of the first, probably the first famous athlete I talked to was Matt Forte um, back when he was oh, with the nice. Bears. I want to say mm-hmm. this was probably 2013. I remember it was a bye week and it was the it was bye week of the, the last Tressman year. And literally the next week they played the Packers and everything went in the toilet after that. Oh, yeah. Uh, it was a terrible season after that. But I got him before that happened. It was a beautiful day out. It was like a Thursday. Went up to Hallis Hall and he was doing, Matt Forte was doing, uh, a web comedy series with a couple of improv guys and Wes Welker and a few other players called Tough Season. And the, the the plot of Tough Season was like, imagine you and me, the three of us, and like Gronk and, um, you know, Kyler Murray, and we're all in a fantasy football league and we're super hyper competitive about it. And, you know, they're, they're like playing football on teams, but they're also picking their yeah. fantasy. So it's, it's, it was kind of like a quirky bedfellow thing with uh, – the whole fantasy football and the hyper competitiveness and people trying to outsmart each other. But so Matt Forte is kind of chill. He's like a understated sense of humor and he was really laid back and kind of soft spoken and just kind of got to roll with him. And, you know, I'm a lot more talkative than he is. So I didn't want to like scare the guy, but I'm like, tell me about your sense of humor. Like you don't seem like you're really loud, but obviously you got something there and you, you know, tell me what it's like to, to roll with these loud mouths and these you know pro comedy guys. And he told me about it. And it was just, you know, like, yeah, I'm just when when they think that I'm sitting there quiet, I don't have anything, anything to say. I just bang, I got a funny line, I hit them with it, leave, <laughs> leave them dumbfounded or something. So, you know, not everybody is of his personality. There are a lot of headstrong, in your face people in sports. Uh, I've never had really any bad, I've never had anybody be a jerk to me, I don't think, but I also am very respectful. Sure, respectful, excuse me. So, mm-hmm. 
yeah, treat people like they're normal people and everyday people and don't get too like personal cozy with them. But yeah. sometimes, you know, you ask a question and you'll get a great answer. You just open as a question like what made you do this or how do you feel about this or how do you prepare for this type of, you know, this championship. And they'll tell you, you know, they'll tell you what they want to tell you. And usually there's good things there. Excellent. Nice. Um, all right. Well, before we get you out of here, I know we're, we're coming up on the end here. We always, whenever we are lucky enough to have an interview, we like to do like a quick hit segment at the end where we do some rapid fire questions. If you're game cool. for that first thing that pops into your mind, let us know. And then, uh, we can, we can go from there. All right. First one, favorite <laughs> Cubs player of all time. Oh, geez. It's weird. I, I, I kind of think of my least favorite Cubs player of all time. Oh. first. I think of uh, my, Bob, my least favorite Cubs player of all time is Kevin Tappany after the fifth inning. Cause he's a great <laughs> Pittsburgh to the fifth inning, and then he'd put 15 people on base. That is accurate. Uh, I don't know. You know, I have, a, I have a kind of a fetish for, like, middle relievers and closers. I'm just kind of fascinated with that gig. Mm-hmm. Uh, however, like, every time the Cubs get a good closer, they, he's gone, like, a season later. So I never really got to, like, kind of get into it with um, Wade Davis. Or I actually have a uh, – I have a Chia pet, which is a certain uh, – it's Craig Kimball Chia pet. <laughs> Holy this. cow. I think I actually got the I showed up early enough to get the Chia pet. Uh, so I don't, you know, I don't know, but let me just say Ryan Dempster because of his personality. I think okay. he's, that's, a, nice. that's a safe, he's, that's a safe all one. All kinds of different roles. He's obviously nowhere near a Hall of Fame or anything like that, but he kept us entertained. He was always positive, even when the Cubs were terrible and mm-hmm. on the field. And you got to hand hand it to him for that, I guess. Uh, I, yeah. I I like that. That's that's a nice. Good, that's a good answer. Uh, all right, here's another one. This this could be any time period. Favorite band or musician of all time? Well, it depends on how I feel and what, which way the wind is blowing. Mm-hmm. But um, because I've got two other posters on my wall, I'm going to say the Stone Roses. The Stone Roses okay. are uh, the seminal Manchester band. You know, pretty much there are people who don't know who the Stone Roses are, and if you're an Anglophile, you definitely know who they are, and you know all their songs. And they were. They were so their first album came out in '89. If you don't not familiar with the Stone Roses, maybe you are, but if you're not, you need to go listen to them. Uh, great songwriters, great band. They were supposed to be the next band in the world from England, mm-hmm. and they just kind of were fighting with the record company, couldn't get it together. They're kind of they're, they're brilliant and lazy, you know. They just kind of didn't give a shit too much about like following sure. through a career. And they got back together in 2016. We're supposed to put together an album, put out two singles, toured in Europe. You know, next thing I know on Wikipedia, it says Stone Roses was a band from Manchester. I'm like, oh, really? <laughs> <laughs> Thanks for letting us know, guys, that you broke up, kind of. Uh, yeah, the Stone Roses are amazing. Uh, if you've never heard them. I will check them out. I will definitely <laughs> yeah. check them out. Yeah. Basically, precursors, precursor to, you know, the best bands from England, like, uh, I don't know. You may hate Oasis, but Oasis took a lot from them. There's just the sure. influence of generation of musicians from Manchester while also doing their own unique thing. So, Stone Absolutely. Roses. Nice. Cool. Uh, all right. What about to, to dive back into the 90s? Favorite 90s song of all time? Oh, there's there's there's, there's 15, so many. Right? I know. Yeah. Things. Uh, so the day. I, so I have I have the opinion um, that the 90s musically started with Smells Like Teen Spirit by Nirvana, obviously. Okay. And I feel like the 90s ended with the song by Len called Steal My Sunshine. Right? I love that song. I Unabashedly. That. <laughs> yeah. So that's to me, that's I think it came out in 99, the summer when the yep. movie Go came out. Mm-hmm. It's a great I mean, maybe it's just what I was feeling at the time, but it was like a great like I kind of knew the 90s was, was going to end. The boy bands were starting to pop up. Mm-hmm. Britney Spears 
rockers and all our imitators are starting to pop, pop up and dance with barely any clothes on stage. And I was like, you know, the songwriting thing and the grunge thing, the indie thing is kind of going by the wayside. And this funny little pop song that references, it's got a clip from uh, a 70s disco song, actually. And it's a little hip hoppy and a little alternative. Just kind of like, I feel like it summed up the 90s in three minutes and was a great look back about look back at how great the decade was. So mm -hmm. that's, I'm going to go with that. Cause that is a very underrated nineties song. And it's, you know, one of the best. I, nice. that is, that is the, the video for steal my sunshine. I, I got way into music videos in, in my teen years, yeah. but that video for me is like quintessential there. I think they're at like the, was it like a Jersey it's boardwalk? Right. They're having a good time. They're, they're going down like the, like the boulevard of whatever city they're in. And, and I'm assuming on the East coast and, you know, Daytona actually. Yeah. Was it, was it really Daytona? Okay. I did not know. That's good to know. Went to Daytona for spring break. Okay. Which is scooters and drive yep. around do their video on it. You know, great stuff. So I, 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 Oh God, I love that video. I love that song too. Um, all right. I, I think I know what your answer is going to be for this one. Uh, favorite nineties movie. Well, there's a couple. Um, okay. You think I was going to say Days Confused? I was. I thought you were going to go either Days Confused or High, high Fidelity. That's what I thought you were going to go well, with. Well, High Fidelity technically came out to, in 2000. Oh, that's right. Technically, it was 2000. That's right. Days Confused, right. Pulp Fiction. Uh, favorite reboot, actually, was the Brady Bunch movie because it was it oh, totally God. threw me for a loop. <laughs> I forgot about that one. Is that a very Brady sequel, too? These idiots lost in the 90s who were completely clueless as to what's going on. Great. Yes. I, I, made my, I made my kid watch that. He was like, I don't want to watch this movie. I'm like, no, you're going to like it. <laughs> <laughs> of the zeitgeist I, I would have to say days confused especially okay. since it was an indie production you know nobody knew anything about link later it was it was i guess promoted like it was gramercy films and maybe eventually miramax and then but like it's still relevant today and, and all the people who we didn't know who the hell they were didn't know who ben affleck was didn't know who uh i don't know parker posey was um who else is in that movie uh a bunch of people. There's yeah. There's a there's a lot. I mean, there's Matthew McConaughey. Yeah, McConaughey, oh, yeah. McConaughey. Of course, and he's won an Oscar. Come on, <laughs> all those people in that movie. And there's not really a plot. I mean, there's a plot, but there's not really a plot. Yeah, and they're just hanging out in the they're hanging out in the 70s. But you know, that was uh, yeah. I think that's just it, it's such a unique movie, and I love that movie so damn much. So I, I'd say Days Confused. Excellent. Good choice. Nice. All right. I got, I got three more for you. This one kind of goes back to, I know we, we talked a little bit about deep dish earlier. Are you a Giordano's guy, a Lou Malnati's guy or a Pequod's guy, or is there some other smaller chain or smaller mom and pop pizza place that uh, you're a fan of their deep dish? Giordano's is, is, is reliably good. Um, mm -hmm. You know, it's kind of like of the major ones. It's the one that I know I'll, I'll go to. I, I, I don't dislike Pequod's and, um, Lumanati's. I actually hadn't had Lumanati's till about ten years ago. I just kind of was a late bloomer on that. Mm -hmm. But I actually like Eduardo's. Um, okay. Eduardo's. They have a pesto pizza where so they grow their they grow their uh, the spinach in in the restaurant sometimes. So it's oh, cool. it's okay. like fresh. The pesto is mixed in with the cheese, so it's like really oozy and greased oozes grease basically, like in a good way. Olive oil, nice. I guess. And uh, yeah, I love green olives in my pizza, so I'm like that and green olives. You know. Salty as hell, great stuff. Yeah, Eduardo's is probably the underrated one. But in terms of the big, the big hitters, I would, you know, I don't know. It's a toss-up between Luminati's and Giordano's. They're both, you know, they're different, but they're great. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I, uh, I, I'm torn on that. Lose was one when we used to go to Tasty Chicago. That was like the big get for us because we didn't have a lose uh, anywhere near 
on the south side until it kind of blew up a little bit. You know, there's one in New Lenox now. There's there's one in, uh, what would it be, Naperville, I believe. And, well, that's more far further northwest. But, um, all right, I got two more. Last Second to last one, penultimate one, best Chicago concert venue. Well, it's still open or, or of all time? Um, I, I, we'd go either way. Your, your call. I don't, I love seeing the, the small shows at Lounge Jacks, and I'm actually mm-hmm. like on Facebook. I'm I'm part of a group called I Miss Lounge Jacks. Occasionally, I'll post my stuff there. Like, hey, I'm, I mentioned Lounge Lounge Jacks in my book. Buy my book. Like, not quite <laughs> that. But I, like, I remember just seeing like I I saw Rocket from the Crypt there for free. I think it probably '97. I go in, you know, I'm waiting to meet friends, and Peter Buck from REM is standing there. Now REM played that night, so I think what happened at at, the, at uh, what was called the Rosemont Horizon back then. Now it's all Oh yeah, yep. I think the concert ended, and he hightailed in the cab to get to Lounge Jacks to see this free show by Rocket from the Crypt, which they took an hour to get on, and then they all come out in their matching like sequin bowling shirts. Freaking <laughs> awesome, man! And like I saw Peter Buck, and I just I'm going to go over and say hello. I'm not going to bother. Like hey. Great to meet you. I just wanted to tell my friends I met you. Cool. And he looked at me like, who the hell are you? <laughs> um, so many, and, you know, uh, so many great shows at Lounge Jacks. But I think as they exist right now in terms of what is still open, I mean, Metro is a theater, but it's a great venue. Mm-hmm. However, I've never been to Sleeping Village. I'm going there later. Yeah, Next month, there's a band called Mama. Um, they're from L.A. They sound a lot like Veruca Salt. And it's, oh, it's okay. I think these girls are like 19 or 20 or 21. They're pretty young, freaking great bands. I'm going to go see them. It's cost me 13 bucks. I've never been to Sleeping Village. So I'm going to see if that's, you know, an impressive venue because I've never been there. But mm-hmm. now there's there's all kinds of this, like the Chop Shop and, uh, I mean, Subterranean's great. Like there's, yep. I don't know. I can't really pick one. I think Metro's kind of the, I don't like going to big, con- big, big, like big venues like stadiums. No. So I would say Metro, but I think there's a couple other I got to check off my list before I can really distinctively say, because I'm no expert on this, but I say Metro right now. I, I and, and see, I just assumed it was getting older, but I, we are, you know, 20 minutes from, uh, God, what is it called? I don't, I don't, Vinny, you would know because you're not from around here, but I think it's at First Midwest Bank Amphitheater in Tinley Park now. I, or it used to be the Tweeter Center. It was originally the world, whatever. Yeah. And that's kind of just been our go-to because it's so close. But uh, I, and I don't know if it's just because I'm getting old and I'm turning into like that get off my lawn type of guy, but yeah. I like the more intimate, smaller venues. I don't need a bunch of, you know, kids that showed up because it, tickets were cheap and they're going to listen yeah. to this band, even though they have no affinity for them. My wife almost got into a fight with a bunch of teenagers at a Blink-182 concert because she was upset oh. that they were there. And she's were like, this is... no, they were just they were annoying as hell. And she's like, you don't know this music. She she was really unhappy <laughs> about it. Yeah. You you weren't even alive when we were listening to Damn It, Damn It. You know, like that kind of thing. But uh, all right. Last one for you. Uh, and this goes back to, you know, the, the reference of the gray line and the L in the book. Uh, either tell us your best or I guess technically worst L experience if you have one. Oh, I got a great one for you. It's funny that you brought this up. So um, we all know who Ronnie Wu is, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So <laughs> I, I, again, my memory's trying to serve me. I'm 50 years old now. So I, this was, I believe I was coming back on the L. I was underground on the red line. It was February. And I see, so there's somebody, some street musician playing a violin. He's playing like a fiddle, kind of a, um, you know, like a, like a bluegrass type of song. And Ronnie Wu Wu shows up like in uniform with his cub uniform and he's wearing a Santa hat and it's not December, by the way. <laughs> and he's, he's clearly drunk or buzzed and he's dancing. Like this is like, it like state and 
Monroe or whatever the okay. stop is. And he's like getting down and, you know, like doing the, the jungle boogie and, you know, dancing drunk to this guy's playing a fiddle, just trying to, you know, get some, some people to throw coins in his. Yeah. 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 That would be, that would probably be the one that, I mean, every time I think about Ronnie Wu, I think about that one. So I, I That's guess he went in, in his Cubs uniform without a coat in February and then ended up on the, the red line and he just did a little dance for us. So it was really bizarre, but very Chicago too. Wow. Yeah. I, I think I'd be speechless. I don't even know what I would say or think at that point, but <laughs> Uh, well, Andy, thank you so much. Would you like to just kind of tell everybody where they can get the book, where they can find your yeah. stuff? I know you got your website and your blog as well. Uh, go ahead and share whatever you'd like to share with us. Yeah. So 90 days in the nineties is out. It came out in uh, June. You can go to 90 days in the nineties.com with 90, nine, zero days in the nine, nine, zero S.com. If you want, uh, that's direct from me. The artist gets to keep more of the more of the money there. If you want to buy from me, I'll send you some swag and I'll I'll, I'll sign uh, sign the book for you. Otherwise, you can also get it at, you get it on Amazon. Um, Barbara's Bookstores downtown has a couple, and if you're in uh, the cool neighborhoods, you can stop by Reckless Records has a couple copies up on Belmont and also in Wicker Park. Uh, Rattleback Records actually has some copies up in, if you're in Andersonville. But uh, yeah, it's, it's uh, 90daysandnights.com or any place you would buy books or maybe records. And other than that, you can check out my sports writing at sportyfry.com. That's fry with an E. And I post about five articles a month there on Forbes. And luckily, they're mostly with cool athletes that you might uh, might have heard of. Excellent. All right. Well, nice. thank you so much. Um, again, this is Baseball Whatever. Uh, feel free to reach out to us again. You can text us. Uh, you can email us. You can tweet us. All those things. We would love to hear from you. Tell us what you think of Andy's book if you pick it up and read it. Uh, Vinny, I believe next week is version two of Musical Mayhem, correct? That is correct. Uh, and if you are, if you do not remember, we will be uh, picking random artists, random groups, and trying to find a song of theirs that we enjoy. The goal was to try and get me to branch out of 90s and early aughts alternatives. So I believe, Vinny, you pulled randomly. We have Neil Young, Nirvana, Jimi Hendrix, Jimmy Buffett, and Bono Bo, who I believe was more of a like a lo-fi musician, right? Lo-fi yes. like sound, background music. Musical. So, yeah. so yeah, so write in, let us know your favorite uh, songs of theirs. I, I'm already dreading listening to Jimmy Buffett this week. But anyway, I digress. Uh, Andy, <laughs> thank you so much for your time. We will be back next week with baseball and whatever. Everybody have a great weekend and uh, take care, everybody. See you. Thanks, man.